from the entertainment capital of the world, Las Vegas. For Creator Talks, I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. My guest this week, J.M. DeMatteis. He is returning to Star Trek after decades, writing the one-shot Hell's Beer, coming out on March 18th, with art by Matthew Dow Smith. I asked J.M., does he consider himself a Trekkie? And we also talk about our mutual love and admiration for the great William Shatner. We also get into his CW seed animated story, Deathstroke, Knights and Dragons, and another adaptation he wrote for animation coming out this month, Superman Red Sun. I discuss with JM some of my favorite stories that he ever wrote back in the 80s and 90s for Marvel, and one of these happens to be his favorite of all time, and no, it's not Craven's Last Hunt. And also, did you know that JM occasionally runs an imagination workshop where he has classes of limited size teaching writing and storytelling? So we're going to talk about his imagination workshop 101 and 102 courses. Then I get to my signature, kicking back with the creator questions to learn more about JM. If you like what you hear, please rate and review on iTunes, the best way to get people to know about the show, besides telling people about it yourself. Spread the word about Creator Talks and subscribe. It's completely free. It's available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Amazon, Alexa-enabled devices, and on YouTube. And by the way, coming up in my next show, Bob Q, the artist who worked on James Bond Origin, Lone Ranger, and is now working on Red Sonja. But first, let's talk with J.M. DeMatteis. Here now, on Creator Talks. J.M., welcome to Creator Talks. Happy to be here. The big news is that you're returning to Star Trek with a one-shot Hell's Mirror, and that's coming out in March, March 18th. Do you consider yourself a Trekkie? I have been a hardcore Star Trek fan for a good part of my life, yeah. The word Trekkie, I don't, I don't know about that, but I probably am, so I guess I might as well <laughs> might as well accept it. It's just not a word that I ever thought was a, I never quite loved that word. But yeah, big, big fan of the original series. That's where my love lies. I've enjoyed almost all the incarnations of Star Trek, but to me, when I think, what is Star Trek? It's Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, and that enterprise, and those stories. And, and that's why this the opportunity to do this. You know, Wrath of Khan is not just my favorite Star Trek movie. It's one of my favorite movies, period. When they got in touch and they said, well, we're going to do a Mirror Universe story, and it's going to be Khan, the top of my head blew off. It was like, oh, thank you. You know, I, mean, I would have paid them to do this one, you know? Plus, I got to work with my friend Matthew Dow Smith, who's a wonderful artist and perfect for stories like this. And it was just a dream. I'm just sorry it was only a one shot. I could have done six issues of Kirk and Khan in the Mirror Universe. But, you know, just to get the chance to do it, because the only other Star Trek comic I ever did was when I first started out, when I was very early on at Marvel, they had the Star Trek license right after Star Trek The Motion Picture, I guess. And they had a short run of a not, you know, it was an okay run because they only had the rights, I think, to Star Trek, the motion picture. So they couldn't really explore the broader Star Trek universe. It was very limited. And uh, when I was first starting out, and I think I probably even wrote it, I don't know whether I wrote it as a fill-in and then just slotted it in. And it ended up being the last issue of the Marvel Star Trek. I was young and new and still figuring out how to write a comic book. So I've had people say they've enjoyed the story, but there's a lot of water under the bridge since then. And I, and this story is, is a much better story than that story that I wrote then. So it was great to have a chance to come back all these years later. And you know, the great thing about Star Trek is, you know, these characters inside and out. So I start to write dialogue for Spock and it's like, you don't have to think about it. It's in our DNA, you know. It's like, it's just like, oh, that of course that's how Spock talks. So there's not you don't have not a second thought about that. Um, I know these guys inside and out. It was great fun, and we I think I constructed a, an interesting story. And because it's the mirror universe, you know, a lot of our assumptions about these characters are turned inside out, and it was it was just great fun. Very satisfying. Well, you answered one of my questions already. I was going to ask, how much time did you put in prepping for this? But as you said, you know the characters. And this is the fun of what I do anyway. You know, I do a lot of comics. I do a lot of animation. And sometimes my research is reading comic books and watching cartoons. You know, what I mean? <laughs> And it's work. And I always, I always say if I could just travel back in time to my 10-year-old self and say, I read comic books and watched cartoons today and it was work, he would just faint with delirium, you know? <laughs> 
But so what I did have to do is I went back and I rewatched Mirror Mirror. I went back and I rewatched Space Seed, and it, and it was the same feeling. It's like I'm watching Space Seed, and it's it's for work. This is so great, you know. <laughs> so that was about all the research that I did. And then you know there are little questions like, well, how many people were on Conship? And the wonders of the internet, you can always find the answers to those questions in two clicks, you know. If you don't know and you get it wrong, people will let you know. <laughs> yes, that's for sure, especially in the Star Trek world. Oh, yeah. yeah, I love the original Star Trek, and it's always been on television, and now it's on all the time on the weekends, and I look forward to seeing it, and the kids like it, and there's just something about it. I don't know if it was when it was made, this the, the type of stories it is. It just seems timeless to me in a way, watching those characters and those actors perform. I just get so much pleasure out of watching that. Yeah, and you know, as others have said, when you compare it to a lot of what was on TV in the 60s, it's amazing how good it is, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It really, really... And you know, people always joke, oh, it was, you know, it was a show with cheap special effects and blah, blah. But it really wasn't. At the time, it was a show that spent a fortune on state-of-the-art special effects doing things that had never been done on television before. It may look quaint to our eyes now in this futuristic year of 2020. But back then, that was not cheesy. That was like top-of-the-line state-of-the-art. And they worked their asses off to get those effects to look the way they looked. And they polished them up a bit. Oh, yeah, when they did the, that remaster, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's I guess the ones that are on Netflix, I know, have the, the remastered effects. And they're done pretty well, and they, and they fit in pretty seamlessly, I think. They do, because I'm not taken out by it. I don't go, oh, look at that CGI. It looks cheesy. I mean, it's like right. the planets, it's just uh, the ship, but it really fits in very seamlessly. It looks great. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I love these Mirror Universe comics that IDW is putting out and having Matthew Dow Smith do the art. I mean, he's been on the show. I love his stuff. If he's on a book, I'm there. You know, I just have to read it. And being Star Trek, too, on top of that, perfect. What's it like working with Matt? He's a great guy. We become friends in recent years and been talking about doing something together for a while. We did one one little project together at DC that was just like a, also a one-off. So we're looking for the big project to do together, you know, because we get along in our styles, my writing and his art really mesh. And we, we sort of understand story in the same way. Matt's not just an artist, he's also a writer. So he's very story-centric. So uh, we're actually developing a big project right now that if we can get it off the ground will be really something fun and something we can really sink our teeth into that'll be a, a massive project that will be very challenging and creative and a lot of fun. Would this be something the two of you do yourselves or would this be through a publisher you can't speak about right now? We're in the development stage right now after which we're done you know, putting together our presentation we'll be taking it out to publishers. Now can you tell us anything about the story? It's a one shot so you can't reveal too much. I really don't want to say much of anything other than you know it takes place in the same time frame as Space Seed. Okay. So this is, you know, what if Space Seed happened in the Mirror Universe? And that's really all I want to say, because, you know, the whole point of a story like this. And it is so hard to get the surprise these days with movies, with the trailers, they give away so much. With the previews, yeah. sometimes they give away yeah. too much. And then it ruins it. And, oh, man, the worst is when we're watching something on television streaming, and we're trying to figure out which episode we watched last. And then they tell you in the description too much about what's coming up. And it's like, right. no. Right. Yeah, right. yeah, I mean, like the writer put all this time into it, and you're spoiling it. Yeah, trailers that give everything away. You know, there was a period where trailers shifted, and those kind of trailers started coming in. I remember years ago, there was a Harrison Ford movie called, I think it was called Understanding Henry or something like oh, that. Oh, yeah. And I remember being in the theater uh, with my wife. I don't think we were married yet at the time. And watched the trailer, and we both were like, well, I guess we don't have to see that movie because they just literally showed every major beat of the movie in the trailer, you know? Yes. Um, and that, that drives me crazy. But the, the flip side is now we, we live in a world where things are leaked and, you know, it's like the Internet knows everything. Mm -hmm. So there's a certain point where, you know, letting some information out ahead of time as a creator it's not a bad thing because it's going to get out there anyway. So you might as well control the leak. Do you know uh, what I mean? Yes. Um, it's almost like, you know, it's like now it's like, you know, comics come out. So they, they always put the five or six pages online mm -hmm. so people can read it before the book comes out. Or, you know, they do, they do some big hype about some big element of the story that once upon a time you would have kept quiet. But I think it's also because there's so much competition right now. There's so much. There's so much material out there. Forget like TV and movies. Just look at comics. There's so much stuff out there and everyone is fighting for a little breath, especially, you know, when you're working on creator-owned stuff. It's really, really hard 
to get through the white noise and have people recognize, forget recognize the work to even know that it's even out there. So if you have to put out 10 pages of a book of the first issue before a book comes out in order to get someone's attention, then you do it, even if it's giving away stuff. This is just a one shot. So you don't want to give away too much on something that's just a you know, one off story. Why would you know put out like half your book? No, I don't think so. Because then why would anyone buy it? You know. So I like the idea that beyond the fact that it's the mirror universe version of Space Seed, and it goes in a very different direction from Space Seed, I will say that as well. The only thing it has in common is that it's the sleeper ship, it's the same time frame, and it's con. And that's all I'll say about it. So for a story like this, you want there to be surprise. You don't want to give too much away. If it was like a ten issue epic. Then sure, if we told you, you know, half of what happened in the first issue wouldn't matter. And if people, when they get this, they really enjoy it. I would say, you know, write a letter. I know, write. But write a letter, send an email, let the publisher know you want to see more. Because it takes a little bit of effort, but it really does pay off. Because when they hear from people and they take the time to write a little note and say, wow, I really appreciate this. I mean, it's easy to pull out our phones and tweet about it and everything. And that's great. I mean, it's wonderful to amplify the message, get the word out. People that might have missed it, they go out there and get it. Don't you think that if people write a letter or or email or send something in that it goes just a little further to helping see more? Absolutely. Because just we're saying, and I, you know, people always say, and I don't know what the figure is, you know, one letter or one email, they equate to like 100 people. Or whatever it is that, that the fact that one person took the time, it's a reflection that there's a lot more people out there thinking like that. And then, you know, if they get 10 or 20 or 30 letters, then there you go. So we want to see more. Oh, I would love to do more. Also, I would love to, you know, any, anything uh, dealing with those characters and that universe would be really, really fun. Really, really fun. Have you been to any Star Trek conventions? Years and years and years and years ago when they were first kicking off. I'm old enough to remember when it was on originally. And being, you know, a kid who was into fantasy and science fiction, I would watch it. But I don't remember being a hardcore fan. I just remember that I liked it. And whenever I had a chance to watch it, I did. I don't remember sitting there every week watching it. It was when it went into syndication, when I guess I was in uh, ninth or 10th grade or something like that. Uh, And it was on, you know, I grew up in New York. So every day at six o'clock on Channel 11, there was Star Trek. And that was when uh, that was when I got really hooked. And what was interesting about those days in the 70s is that Star Trek was not just a phenomena of the, quote, science fiction community. I had a lot of friends who weren't into comics or science fiction or anything. I was a musician. I lived in a house with a whole bunch of other crazy musicians and our girlfriends and all this stuff. And at six o'clock, everybody was sitting around watching Star Trek. Do you know what I'm saying? And then that was the mid 70s where that sort of Beatlemania energy around Star Trek really started to peak. I don't remember whether someone gave me tickets, right? No, no. I just like, I think we just decided, oh, this is an interesting thing. Let's go and see what one of these conventions is. And it was insane. I mean, it was, you know, more people showed up than they expected. There were just thousands and thousands of people. Uh, the entire cast was there. And it was really a window into a world that I didn't understand because I'm the kind of person who basically, when I have an enthusiasm, uh, whatever it may be, I kind of keep it to myself. It's me and that thing, you know, whether it's me and Star Trek or me and the Beatles or me and my own spiritual life, whatever it may be. It's pretty personal. And uh, I'm not a big fan of groups. You know, suddenly to be surrounded by thousands of crazy people, no crazier than I am, but there's more of them now and it feels weird, you know, but it was really interesting. What I remember most about that convention was being incredibly impressed with William Shatner because the whole cast was there. There were so many people that they did like a show with the whole cast in the afternoon and then a show with the whole cast in the evening. And in the evening it had settled down a little bit. And, you know, the whole cast came out and they were very charming and they and they took questions. And they did what they did. And then Shatner came out. And he didn't just do questions or just tell a little, little funny story. He actually gave a performance for whatever the 15 minutes he was on the stage. It was like a one-man show. And it was really pretty extraordinary. To this day, I remember he was telling a story about when he was doing Shakespeare in Canada. And he was an understudy for Christopher Plummer. And he had to go on in, I think it was Henry V or something like that. And he acted out the whole thing. He was himself. He was the other actors on the stage. I mean, he gave an amazing performance. And that's when I went wow, there's a lot more to this guy than Captain Kirk, you know, and uh, very, very impressed by that. And I only went to one convention after that. And I think that was the one where someone gave me tickets that after that, I was like, okay, you know, I've been to enough Star Trek conventions, I don't really need to do that. Although, you know, the fun of going to comic book conventions these days is you can always see those guys at the conventions when I, you know, when I'm there as a guest, they're there as a guest too. So you're sitting there sometimes. I was there, one of the conventions this past year, I'm sitting with my wife at one table at the next table is a Shatner and Michael Dorn. 
and Alice Cooper. How about that? How about that for a threesome? <laughs> <laughs> That's the fun of these conventions when you go to the ones that are celebrity heavy and they deign to allow the comic book people to sit in the same room and eat at the same tables, you know, mm-hmm. as the quote celebrities. Um, you just see the weirdest mix of characters. It's really, really interesting. You know, if Shatner's there and he's doing one of his one hour talks, I'll always go and see him and hear him. At 88 years old, he's still just as entertaining as he was when I saw him in the 70s. I've never met him, never seen him in person, but I just love his acting because he's just so into whatever he's doing and puts everything into it. Yes, that's exactly right. And he's doing like an hour at some convention in Raleigh, North Carolina, whatever, wherever it may be. And he's giving it a thousand percent. I used to just crack up and love the commercials that he would do for Priceline. Bust a move, you know, he'd sing that yeah. <laughs> It's great. And he even did some music with Joe Jackson, Ben Folds 5. He did a song. Ben Folds' album has been, is phenomenal. Not ironically phenomenal. It's really phenomenal. You know, some of his other albums are questionable, you know, but has been. It's a fan. That, to me, that was peak Shatner when he was on Boston Legal, which was the best performance I think he ever gave in his life on that show, because he probably had the best writing of his life on that show. No offense to Star Trek, which you know I love. Uh, and then Has Been came out around the same time. It was like, that was peak Shatner as far as I'm concerned. I haven't been to a Star Trek convention. I haven't attended one. I've been in the orbit of one. I didn't know, realize, after I got here in Las Vegas, that they have a big convention. Oh, well, they have like a massive one, right? Isn't it like the, one of the biggest one is there in Las Vegas? Yeah, it's at the Rio. I met J.K. Woodward there and talked to him. I didn't actually go to the con, but I saw a lot of people that were attending the con, walking around the Rio, and they just looked like they were having the greatest time. They were in costume and everything, and they just looked like they were having a blast. Now that I know it's here... I plan to go this year. You know, the other great thing in the age of the internet is all this stuff gets videoed and put on YouTube. Yeah. So that, you know, I'll, I'll be, you know, scrolling around on YouTube and then there's, you know, all this footage from some Star Trek conventions. You can watch all these panels and all these talks. One of the upsides of the internet is that it's just incredible access to these things. That if you're a nerd about anything, like I mentioned, I'm, I'm a huge, huge Beatles fan. Mm-hmm. Every bootleg, outtake, sneeze you know what i mean that they ever did is uploaded to youtube somewhere it's extraordinary the stuff that you used to have to run around and go look for bootleg albums and find the right store and buy it under the counter whatever it was you know it's all out there every interview every obscure interview oh john lennon was on the today show in 1974 and there it is you know it's amazing it's just amazing and the same thing with star trek you can find anything anything you want out there Whatever your enthusiasm, you know, whatever your passion, it's out there in some form floating around in the internet ethers. Back to comics, when you first started, some of your first stories were horror. Why was there an interest in that? Well, there was a really simple reason why there was interest in that, because that's what they were buying. (laughs) (laughs) When I started, you know, the way you broke in at DC was they had these anthology comics, the House of Mystery, Mm -hmm. Weird War Tales, House of Secrets, all those weird little books where they were basically five to eight page uh, twist ending, Twilight Zone-ish, you know, supernatural slash horror stories. So if that's what they're buying, that's what I'm writing, you know, because especially when you're starting out and really as a freelancer, it happens all through your career. You don't always have the choice about what you're going to write. You have the choice about how are you going to write it? But if you uh, want to continue to make a living, very often you get presented with things that may not be in your wheelhouse necessarily, but you need the gig. So you find a way to make it be in your wheelhouse. You find a way to to fit your voice into that genre or that style, whatever it is they're asking for. And so they were looking for supernatural horror. I'm a huge Twilight Zone fan, so I could slot myself in that way, although I wasn't necessarily a horror fan. Although what I've discovered over the years is that's one of the arenas where I'm pretty good at that. I can, I, I have a natural, um, I can flow into that really, really easily. Last year, I wrote the Constantine City of Demons animated movie, which was, you know, basically straight ahead R-rated horror. Oh, you always want a really uh, dynamic human story along with that, definitely within the horror genre. And I realized again, you know, oh, I do this and I kind of enjoy writing it. So that's the other good thing that comes out of it. Left to your own inclination sometimes, you would not step through that particular door, but you have to step through that door because you have to make a living and you discover that, whoa, not only do I like this, but I'm kind of good at this, you know? So to go back to your original question, starting out, you know, it was, that's what they were buying. So that's what I was writing. And if the next day they said they were buying, you know, stories about, uh, 
people who had pink heads and tails, I would have written that. You know, you want to get in business and you want to pay your rent. Working at Marvel, your dream job was the same thing because you were on a lot of books filling in, uh, you know, yeah. Cap, Defenders, Marvel, Team Up. And it was, it again, the same thing. It was, hey, that was the work they needed done and you did it. Right. But when you start getting into those characters, these are also characters that you love, you know. And the fun of that is sometimes you may like a character or really enjoy a character, but you don't know until you write that character and you connect with them on a deeper level, just how much you love those characters. You know, you mentioned Captain America. I always enjoyed reading Captain America. I would never have put him at the top tier of my favorite characters, but I wrote that book for like three and a half years. And I connected with Steve Rogers and I understood Steve Rogers and I fell in love with that character. Same thing with Spider-Man. I probably at Marvel have done more Spider-Man stories than anything else over the years. And I was always a Spider-Man fan, but it reached another level. It reached a deeper level when you start to write that character and you get to know them. And it has to be this way. You get to know them as three-dimensional, living, breathing human beings. You can't treat them as fictional constructs, you know? You have to believe in them as much as you believe in yourself because you're putting the totality of yourself into them and filtering yourself through them. And I got to know Peter Parker in a way that I know him better than I know some people that would say that I know them well. But I know Peter better than, than real-life people, you know, because of all the time I spent with him exploring his psyche and writing about him. And that's the fun of it as well. And sometimes you stumble across a character, and I can't think off the top of my head, but I know it's happened, where you may really like that character, but you start to write it, and it's just not connecting, you know? You'd rather read about that character than write about that character. Well, your Spider-Man run, of course, is famous with the Craven's Last Hunt. But the one that really impressed me was the Spectacular Spider-Man, like back in 91, that whole run with Sal Buscema. I did that two years with Sal, yeah. You know, Craven, I'm very grateful Craven has lived on all these years. They keep reprinting it. It's always considered, you know, one of the best Spider-Man mm -hmm. stories ever told. And I'm not downplaying that in any way. But that two years that I did with Sal is really special to me. And some of those stories, like The Child Within and Spec 200 with the death of Harry Osborn, those, I think, are some of the best mainstream superhero stories I've ever, ever, ever done. If I had to pick a single, just one issue, it would be that uh, Death of Harry Osborn story. And if I had to pick an arc, it was probably that first seven issues that we did, which was The Child Within, which also was about Harry and Vermin and Peter and dealing with their childhood traumas. And just a story that I'm very proud of. And I can't believe if I may vent a little bit, that it hasn't been collected. In recent years, I've been contacted in Brazil, uh, Italy, I don't know, three, I think like three or four different countries where they put out beautiful new hardcover editions of that story, and we've never seen a collection in the United States. It baffles me. That is amazing. So I was going to ask, has this ever been collected? Because I don't remember seeing it collected. Because I mean, Craven's Last Hunt, as you said, is always being always. reprinted. There's, every two years, there's another new version that comes yeah. out. Yeah, yeah. No, there have been like individual issues have shown up. I think after the last Spider-Man movie, they did a Vulture collection. And there's a three-part Vulture story that I did that was in there. And uh, I think the death of Harry was reprinted in a couple of things. And like this month, they're, they're doing some sort of Ravencroft collection that has the first chapter of The Child Within It which I don't know how that helps anything, the first chapter. but So little bits and pieces, but the whole run or the complete stories have never been collected, and I would just love to see that. You know, people have petitions about it. People are always approaching me about it on Twitter and Facebook. You know, we'd love to see this collected. And so I don't know what the thinking is at Marvel where you see, like, everything in the world. I've seen stuff of my own that I prayed would never be collected. You know what I mean? <laughs> that is back in the world, you know? It's like, oh my God, they collected that? Please help me. And this that I consider some of the best work I've ever done, never been collected. It's absolutely baffling to me. So folks, again, this is where you have to start writing letters because petitions are great, but again, you're signing your name on a long list. Individual right. letters and say why. Say what it meant to you and why you want to read it again as a collection. And when you go to a con, you see their table, go up there and have the letter with you and hand it to them. I mean, every person who wants this has to speak up and write. Good advice. <laughs> <laughs> now I have to write a letter. <laughs> I wholeheartedly endorse this, yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> I have to follow my own advice and do this now. Just pick any le random letter, A, C, <laughs> Z. It doesn't matter. Just write a letter and send it to Marvel. <laughs> 
Another run that you did, and this one meant a lot to me. Back when I was in college, I wasn't buying comics. I had to buy food, beer, whatever. <laughs> um, I just It's just that period when I kind of dropped off for a bit. But I did go occasionally to the local 7-Eleven and pick up comics off the spinner rack. And one of the ones I picked up that caught my eye was an issue of Captain America, as you said, that you loved writing. And there was Deathlock on the cover. And I love that character. Because I remember buying one of his appearances off the spinner rack at 7-Eleven. So I'm like, he's back. I can't believe Deathlock's back. And thinking back, do you recall why it was time for Deathlock to make a return to comics in the 80s? Oh, that one I remember very clearly because it wasn't my idea. Ah, okay. <laughs> Mark Ruinwald, one of the best editors and nicest human beings that Marvel ever uh, had under its roof. And Mark was a total Marvel continuity freak. I mean, he knew that universe inside and out, every asterisk. You know what I mean? He knew mm-hmm. everything. And I think what it was in the original Deathlock series, there was some huge event that happened because it was written in like, I guess, the early 70s, wasn't it? And so there had some big pivotal event that happened in like 1983 or four, whenever we were working on the book. And he said, we should do this and play with that event. I know I remember like looking at Deathlock, but I didn't follow it closely. So probably sent me a bunch of books and Mark being Mark created a whole timeline of everything that happened in Deathlock and when it happened and how it happened, you know? And I remember being overwhelmed and completely confused by it all, you know? Because <laughs> I don't have that brain for all this continuity stuff. I just never did. I, I just want to write about the characters, you know? I, I don't want to write about what happened on Thursday at 2 o'clock between panels 2 and 3, although I have occasionally done that. Um, and so I remember sitting there with all this information that Mark had given me and a basic outline of how we could do the story. But for me, it's like, well, that's great, but it's not a story yet, you know? For me, a story is a story when I can click into the characters and put the characters not just on a plot journey, but on an internal journey. You know, Mark beautifully laid out sort of the tent poles of what could be a plot journey for that story. But I did not have the journey for the characters. And I remember calling him up and saying, you know, I don't know if we should do this because I can't crack this. And he said, well, look, if you don't want to do it, don't do it. And then is what always happens. Once you say I can't do it, something clicked and I suddenly understood what I had to do with Deathlock, and it became a story about the search for identity, which is one of the big themes in all my work. Mm-hmm. Who are we uh, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, cosmically, you know? And because we had Deathlock and a Deathlock clone running around, it was the perfect way to deal with this question of identity. Who am I, you know? And that gave me the door into the story. That ended up being Mike Zeck's uh, last, I guess, was it three or four issues on, on the book before he went off to do Secret Wars. And I think that was the peak of our collaboration on that book. We hit a level on that story that uh, we hadn't hit before. I think the whole run was good, but that story, something really, really clicked. And I think we kind of took that energy, whatever it was, five years later, and that energy continued when we did Craven's Last Hunt together. But yeah, that Deathlock story was a good story. And again, there's a character that I didn't really know that well, I wasn't really into, and yet, given the opportunity, I wouldn't have walked through that door by myself, but given the opportunity by Mark Ruinwald, I did, and it ended up being a great story. And, you know, that happens with the animation work uh, that I do as well. Right now, on uh, if you go to CW Siege, you'll see part one of my latest animated project, which is Deathstroke, Knights and Dragons. You know, I'd done Constantine for CW Siege um, about a year and a half ago, and they approached me about doing this Deathstroke thing. And, you know, my first response was like, well, I'm aware of Deathstroke, mm-hmm. but I don't really know Deathstroke. And from what I know of him, he's not really the kind of character that I... I click with, you know, he's a, he's an assassin and it's sort of a, a, almost a a James Bondian superhero thing. But what was funny was when they approached me for the first time since like the sixth grade, I was actually rereading a few James Bond books. I said, I love these when I was like 12. I wonder how I would react to them now. So I was rereading a few James Bond books and they approached me about Deathstroke and I love working in animation. I love the experience I had on Constantine. So I was very happy to go back and work with CWC again and the folks at the CW network. And so I said, sure, let's do it. And they sent me all this Deathstroke stuff. And I had to kind of work my way through it and figure out who he is and who these characters were and how to put together the right story. And by the time it was done, once again, it turned into a great project. And I'm really, really happy with the way it came out. So you can see it's for CWC. It is free. A lot of people don't even know about it. It's a free app. It's uh, from the part of the CW network. You can get it, you know, on your computer, on your phone, on your Roku, wherever. And so they put up the first half of this. And the way they tend to work this is I really write it as a full-length film, full-length movie. They break it up into these mini episodes that they put on seed. Although what they did here was they took the first six mini episodes and made them one solid block. Then they wait a number of months 
Then they put out the DVD slash Blu-ray slash streaming full-length movie version, which will have 20 minutes more or so than the CWC version has. Then they wait a few months and they put the second half for free on CWC again. So the people that want all the extras will go out and buy the Blu-ray or, or pay for the streaming of the movie. And if you want it for free, you get to watch it on CWC. But the point is, again, I wouldn't have walked through that door on my own, but someone invited me to walk through and it ended up being a great experience and a story that I'm really happy with. So that's a great lesson as a freelancer that our own instincts, you know, sometimes we have to really, really listen to our instincts and know when to say no and know when to say yes. But sometimes our instincts are wrong. And we end up doing things maybe for the wrong reason up front, but it ends up being a great experience. And, you know, it's a great lesson. It's really a great lesson. Don't always say, you know, just because it doesn't feel right, don't say no. And sometimes the reason you say yes is what I said before. It's a simple reason of, I got to pay the rent, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and this is a good gig and it pays well. Or I like working with these people. I'm not crazy about the character, but I like working with these people, whatever it may be. And then you discover that you that, you know, you resonate with that character and you've constructed a story that you're proud of. And that's a great thing. Now, you have been running a workshop, that Creation Point workshop, for a while now. Yeah. Are these some of the things you covered in that workshop? Please tell me about that. Yeah, the, the workshop is called Imagination 101, and we also have an Imagination 201. Once you've taken Imagination 101, you can go – we're doing we – did, I did a 101 in November. We're doing a 201 in May. So if anyone out there who has already taken 101 and wants to take 201, shoot me an email, uh, and uh, we can talk about that. Uh, so, you know, what happened was a few years back, I was doing a little little talk at the Museum of Comic Art in New York City with my friend Danny Fingeroth, who was doing the interview. Mm-hmm. And in the course of, we sat there and talked for like two hours. And, you know, I've been doing this for a while, you know, and suddenly you realize, I know a lot of stuff about this. Because someone, someone suddenly asks you questions about the art or the craft or even the metaphysics of writing. When you're doing the writing, you're not thinking about it. When someone challenges you with a question, you have to verbalize you have to articulate things that you do intuitively you know and suddenly I went oh this is interesting wouldn't it be good to take what i know and put it into a workshop so i threw together this little not little it's a three-day workshop so you know starts on a friday night goes through sunday afternoon i keep the class small maybe 10 people at most and we really dive into every you know the, the sort of you know professional aspect of you know whether it's dealing with editors or how do you manage a schedule things like that to the the creative aspects about plot and character and how do you craft a great story and the metaphysical aspects, which I really love, which is where in the world does this stuff even come from? What are we channeling when we're writing stories? So it's, it goes from the practical to the metaphysical and back again for a whole weekend. And it's really fun. And I always end up by the end of the weekend, I've learned something as well from the questions that I'm asked or from the insights that the students offer. I don't do them a lot. This one I just did in November was the first time I've done it in a few years. And it was so much fun. I want to get back to it again, which is why we're doing the 201 in the spring. So sometime in 2020, I will probably, probably not till the fall, we'll do another uh, 101. And anyone that follows me on Twitter or Facebook, or if you go to my website, jamedmateus.com, I will have information about that. They're great, and it's really gratifying. It's, and I have as much fun as the students do. And I always seem to end up just with a great group of people. I have yet to end up with like, you know, 10 people show up and you go, oh, my God, I don't want to be in room with these people. They're always great people, <laughs> open-hearted people, you know, eager. Uh, everyone, you know, some of them are like really, you know, are young people who are just starting out and really want to learn their craft. Sometimes they're guys that are 45 years old and were creative when they were younger and they want to get that spark back and everything in between. The last one I had uh, in upstate New York, uh, in Kingston, New York, is where I do them for the most part. Although I will travel if someone wants to invite me. And I had one person came from Australia, a woman came from Puerto Rico. I mean, it was people have come from all over the world to take the course. And I'm always very touched when people make that effort to come so far. You know, it's my intention to give you 100% anyway, but when I'm sitting there looking at some guy that just came from Australia, uh, maybe I better give you 150%, you know what I mean? Uh, so um, it's been a very, very gratifying thing for me, and I, I need to make an effort to do more. But what happens is, you know, work comes along, and I get busy with other things, and these workshops have to be planned out, and then they kind of slip away. So I'm, I'm really glad that I did the one in November, and we have the one coming up in May, and probably look for another one in the fall of 2020. And what other work do you have planned for 2020? Well, what's coming up? Uh, we talked about Deathstroke. I have another animated movie coming out. I believe it's in March. Uh, it's Superman Red Sun, uh, adaptation of the Mark uh, Millar story, the very famous uh, graphic novel about basically the premise is what would happen if Superman's rocket landed in Soviet Russia 
instead of in the United States. It's a really cool story. It was very challenging to adapt because it's one of those stories that is just every page is packed with ideas and cool concepts. You know, when you're taking a story like that and you have to winnow it down to 70 or 75 minutes, you have to pick and choose what you're going to use. And then you have to construct the vehicle to tell those stories and make sure there's a very straight arc. In a comic, you can go up, down, sideways. And when you have 70 minutes, you got to keep a forward arc going. So it was a very challenging story. Great story. If anyone hasn't read the graphic novel, you should go out and read it. And I uh, worked with uh, wonderful folks at, at Warner Brothers Animation, Jim Krieg and Bruce Tim, And we sat on the phone for a long time, you know, peeling the story apart putting it back together. I think it's going to be very satisfying for the people that are fans of that graphic novel. And if you haven't read the graphic novel, you can just sit down and watch it without knowing anything. So that's coming out in March. I've been writing for the animated Spider-Man. I have two episodes that have aired already. My third episode will air in the spring. Um, and then I have a couple of comic book projects, like the thing I talk about with Matthew Dow Smith, that are in development right now. And I can't really say anything about them until they're ready to be revealed to the world. Bum, 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 bum. <laughs> okay, well, you're a busy man. And, of course, Star Trek. Yeah, you know, between the animation and the comics, uh, it's a nice balance. Because what happens sometimes, one slows down, the other one picks up, uh, One, you know, and vice versa. And sometimes they're both really cooking, and I'm super busy. And I'm always happier when I'm busier. Sometimes you think, oh, if you have too much work, you're overwhelmed. And it can be overwhelmed. But I would rather have too much work always than too little work. Don't leave me wandering around the house for the day <laughs> going, what am I going to do? I don't know. I'd rather have 10 projects that I'm bouncing around than, than sitting there, you know, pecking away at one. Time slows down if you don't have enough to do. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, when you're someone who works at home, especially, it's like, okay, well, I guess I'll wander on down to the kitchen now. <laughs> <laughs> I would rather be engaged with the story. And that's the fun of it. I talk about this in the workshop, too. You know, once you're engaged with a story, it doesn't matter that it's being published or broadcast, what you're being paid, whether you're being paid, you know, a dollar or a million dollars for the gig. Once you're engaged with the story, that's the magic. You know, when you're writing that story, you're not thinking about who's going to read it or what or when it's coming out or any of that stuff. The, the characters come alive, the world comes alive, and that's that's the joy of what I get to do and why I'm so grateful for the career that I've had. Because that never goes away. That never goes away. It also keeps you young because every story, I always say this, and, and it's true, every story, it's as if I've never written before. You know, you're facing that blank page or that blank computer screen. Yes, I have skills so that if you need a story by tomorrow, I can take that pipe laid out and put it together and give you a story with a beginning, middle, and end and a character arc. But it's not about that. It's about when that stuff comes alive and you're interacting with. Uh, I always talk about the, the story taking on a life of its own, and that's the magic. When that happens, when when I'm riding that horse, is the metaphor I use. You know, you're riding a horse and you think, okay, I'm going 30 miles west, and you start galloping, and the horse starts pulling off to the east. You know, so no, 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 horse, I want to go west, and the and finally you realize. It's not about you. You have to surrender the horse and, this, and the horse gallops off into some area or the character walks off into some arena that you never even suspected was going to be in your story. And it comes alive in a truly magical way. And that to me is the ultimate joy of what I do. So you're a busy guy. What do you like to do for recreation? What do I like to do recreation? You know, I'm a really sort of, um, I'm not that interesting. <laughs> so... <laughs> You know, simple things. Well, I'm also a musician. So to sit at the piano or to pick up the guitar and play, I write songs, I sing. That's something that I take great, great joy in. I was really a musician before I was a professional writer. So in a way, some fundamental way in my soul, I'm almost a musician first. I talk in the workshop a lot about the connection between music and writing. So music is one way. I love to read. It's really simple pleasures. Uh, I like hanging out with my family. I'm really, you know what I mean? It's like, it's sort of George Bailey. You know I mean? it's just, uh, I'm happy to hang, you know, hang out with my family, uh, play music, read a book, enjoy a good meal. I mean, those are the things that as a writer, you know, we have very rich inner lives anyway. And, and a very, very important part of my life is my inner spiritual life and my spiritual path. So that's the other thing. That's sort of the grounding that everything else turns on my spiritual connection and my spiritual path. So everything else sort of, it's like the center of the wheel and they're all, everything else is a spoke that comes out of that. But, you know, it's nothing very dramatic. 
You know what I mean? I'm not mm-hmm. like I like to skydive. You know, no, it's not, I don't do no, no. I'm, I'm not. I don't know. I'm not surfing in a hurricane or anything like that. They're very simple things in my life that give me pleasure. I like to travel. That's one of the fun of conventions these days. You know, these conventions are popping all over the world. And in recent years, my wife and I have gone to Greece and Mexico and Spain, and you know, was, we were just in Scotland, and we get to travel and see the world, and that's a wonderful thing too. So simple pleasures, simple pleasures. What was your favorite birthday? One that you remember well. My favorite birthday. Wow. I, I don't know if I've ever. I mean, I always enjoy my birthday. I'm one of those people that takes like events like that. very. It's my birthday. I'm taking it very seriously. In a, <laughs> seriously in a fun way. Do you know what I mean? I remember years ago, I mean, when I was a teenager, a bunch of friends gave me a surprise party. It's the only surprise party I ever had in my life. Except they kind of tipped their hand, so I knew it was coming. <laughs> but it was still really fun. So that, might, that you know, I don't know if I'd call that my favorite birthday, but that was memorable. But again, really simple. I'm happy on my birthday if I go out and have a nice Indian meal with my family. I don't need anything more than that. I love Indian food. Uh, so take me out for an Indian meal, uh, bring my wife and kids along, and I'm as happy as a clam. I love Indian meals, too. They're great. I could eat Indian food every day. Hypothetical. You're stuck on a deserted island. You have one book you can have for pleasure. What's the one book you want to have? What, just one? Just one. Well, they can be a set if they're related. Just one book. Well, so you have to find a way to cheat then. Like, because you could say one book and it could be like a collection of an entire series of books, but they happen to come in one volume, right? That's right. Yeah, you can do that. Maybe. Gosh, that's a hard one. The first thing that comes to mind is I have this massive collection of Ray Bradbury short stories that I got probably back in the 80s. Uh, It's just called The Stories of Ray Bradbury, and it's a giant hardcover with like, I don't know, at least 100 Ray Bradbury stories in it. So I figured that would be pretty nourishing if I had to have just one book on a desert island. I'd go with that. This is another hypothetical. If IDW were to make an action figure of you, (laughs) what would be your accessory? What would be my accessory? A guitar. Do you still write music? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I put out a CD back in the 90s of some of my material, and I have enough now for at least four CDs. And, oh, and I, wow. every year I threaten, this is the year I'm going to do it. You know, and I talk to my musician friends and maybe this year will be the year that I do it. It has to be at least a double album this time because I have so much material and I keep writing the material. If you have Spotify or something, if you, you can just look me up on Spotify or Apple Music. The music is out there and you can hear the songs and you don't have to pay for it. <laughs> I do like that about Spotify. If I'm not sure if I like something or not, I just try it out. And the, the magic of Spotify is like the magic of the internet. Because I think of some like obscure album that I liked when I was 16, you know, mm-hmm. and it's there. Or I read some article in the New York Times about some new music that I've never heard, but it sounds interesting. It's there. You know, I have playlists of every conceivable kind of music, you know, and it's really great to have access to all of this incredible music that you can just basically at the snap of a finger, it's, it's right in front of you. It's fantastic. Now, What is your beverage of choice? Well, I have to say, again, paints me in a very dull light. Uh, First of all, I don't drink alcohol. I don't drink coffee. The only time I have any kind of caffeinated beverage is if I have a migraine headache because it helps with my headaches. So most of the time I'm drinking water. So that's really a dull choice. So I won't pick that one. (laughs) But every morning my wife and I take time and we sit down and we have like our morning drink together and we – we just sit and we talk about our day and things like that. So what I have is fresh cinnamon sticks and honey in hot water. Ooh. Occasionally, uh, I put in a little a stick of fresh vanilla as well. That's my drink in the morning while she's drinking her coffee. Fancy. That's nice. Yeah. I invented it. <laughs> <laughs> now, we talked about a desert island book. Was there a book that you read that changed the way you think? Probably so many, but, um, you know... When I think about books on spirituality, it's a funny thing because it's not so much the book that changes you. Because the, the thing that I always like to emphasize to people about any kind of spiritual experience is that it's an experience. You know, I always say that you know, the question of does God exist and things like that, that's not an intellectual exercise. I think if there is some sort of divine force out there, we should be able to experience it in and of ourselves. We should have be able to have that experience. So I have read books on spirituality that sort of in the reading of the book, they set off that charge and altered my consciousness. You know, it's about a state of consciousness. So it's not so much the information in the book as this is going to sound weird, as the energy transmitted from the book. Do you know, does that make any sense to you? Or oh, do yeah. I 
completely out in the ether. No, no, no. Makes sense. You know, I have been, I hate the word follower because it, it creates the wrong impression, but I've been a follower of an Eastern spiritual master named Mayor Baba since I'm 19 years old. And when I was 19, I read one of his books and it wasn't about the words on the page. Again, I closed that book and my consciousness just shifted into a whole other place and really, really uh, changed me. So that book was called Life at Its Best, but I wouldn't say it was the book. I would say it was the energy transmitted through the book. But, you know, but then there's just so many books that I don't know if they change your life, but they become your friends and you love and adore them. You know, Franny and Zoe by J.D. Salinger, David Copperfield, so many Bradbury books, Philip K. Dick, so many other books. But if, if Philip K. Dick is an interesting one also because he's one of my favorite writers. I'm gone way off from the one book, haven't I? <laughs> and I feel like, you know, he gets into such strange spaces in his books that sometimes his books as well become consciousness triggers. You know, they kind of shift you into another state of being. I felt the same way about the Twilight Zone as a kid. You would watch those episodes and it wasn't just a story. It sort of opened the door, literally opened the door to another dimension, you know, and opened your vision to the universe in a whole different way. And I guess those are the stories that I like the most, that they open your vision and they touch your heart. I'm rereading a great book now that I, back in the 90s, I was in an airport and I stumbled across this book called Boy's Life by Robert McCayman. And I'd never heard of him. I'd never heard of the book. And I fell in love with the book. It's like Stephen King and Ray Bradbury got together and wrote a novel. And I hadn't read it uh, since the 90s. It came up. I saw, I got an alert that there was an ebook version for like a buck 99. Couldn't pass it up, you know? Also, the other problem I have is I'm really sensitive to mold. So, all my favorite old books I can't read for more than 10 minutes or I start getting a, an allergic reaction to them. So, I thought, okay. And then I ended up, I'm, in, I'm about three quarters of the way through rereading it now. And I love it even more uh, than when I read it, you know, 20 years ago. It's just a wonderful book. And those books like that, they get, they, you know, Ray Bradbury's Dandelion Wine. What what a book. Oh, my God. You know, uh, like I said, Franny and Zoe by J.D. Salinger. So many, so many books. Dostoevsky did the same thing to me when I read Crime and Punishment of the Brothers Karamazov. They're not just intellectual experiences. They seep into your cells, you know, and they do change your life in some way. And maybe not even a way you can articulate, but they become a part of you. And the question I always ask, and it's an interesting question, the Twilight Zone comes into this as well, you know, do we respond to these books because they enlighten us in some way? Or do we respond to these books or movies or TV shows or even music because they unlock a door inside us where this thing already exists? You know, I think about being really young, six years old, watching The Twilight Zone and that show affecting me so profoundly. Is that because it showed me a certain view of the universe that I then adapted as my own? Or is there some place in my soul where that was my view of the universe and watching that show was a confirmation for me of what I already believed, you know, and I think that's mm -hmm. the way art literature interact with us. Part of it is bringing new ideas, but a lot of it is, I think, I think we come into this life with a lot of wisdom and knowledge that's kind of veiled from ourselves, but it's in there. And then we come across a book or we hear a song or we see a movie and it opens that door on that which we already are, that which we already know. And it resonates in this profound way. And you go, yes, that's the truth. That's the way the universe is. You know, it's an interesting space between, you know, is it bringing new information in or is it shining a light on information that we already contain? And I know I went far afield of your question, but no. Is there anything that you know now that you wish you knew when you were younger? I'm sure there are a thousand things. Yeah, I guess just about, you know, because, you know, life takes us on strange courses and we stumble and we fall and we make mistakes. And sometimes I think I'd love to go back to my younger self and, and drop into his body for a day and just realign a few things with what I know now, you know, be able to say to that person that I'm with, you know, I know we're going to go through some shit the next few years, but don't worry about it. It's all going to work itself out, you know, yeah. but, you, but you can't do that because you had to go through that. But the only thing I can think of but even then, you know, you take away the joy. Like I said earlier, if I could go back in time to my 10-year-old self and say, you know, see this kid at 10 or 12 reading a Spider-Man comic and say, you're going to be writing Spider-Man. You're going to get to do all these things that for right now you could never even imagine that you'd get to do, you know. But then you rob that kid of the joy of doing it and discovering it. I don't know if I even that. Much as I would love to go back, you'd almost want to go back and tell him, then wipe the memory. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Let him have the joy, and then it'll be, it'll be one of those pieces of knowing that you don't know consciously, but somewhere in his heart, you know. But I, you know, I believe that about uh, creative people. We probably have that in our hearts anyway. There was always some part of me that knew that this was I, what I was going to do. Not necessarily that it took the form that it did, but I knew that I was going to make my living 
doing something creative, whether it was music or writing or art or whatever it may be. I just knew that. I knew that I wasn't from a young age that I was not made for a nine to five world where I got on the subway and I went to a job and I did all that thing. I would have had a nervous breakdown and jumped out a window, which I just don't. And I'm not putting that down. I'm just saying that I don't have the nervous system for that and that I always had this creativity inside myself. And I always believed that somehow I was going to do that. And so I guess that kid in some way did know. So I don't have to go back and tell him. It's an interesting thing. Damn, this has been very enlightening and I really enjoyed the conversation. And we just scratched the surface. I have so many other notes here, but we'll save that for another time. Yeah, I'm happy to come back another time and chat some more. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on Creator Talks. A pleasure. Thank you. All right, folks, I think at the end of the show, after the closing music, I might have a little something extra tacked on there, so stay tuned. And as I said at the beginning of the show, coming up on the next episode, artist Bob Q. Robert Quinn. He's the artist on Lone Ranger, The Devil's Rope, Red Sonia, and he also was the artist on Green Hornet 66 meets The Spirit. And he has coming up some work in Captain America. Did you know that Bob also had a YouTube show called Bob's Drawing Challenge? and also does a bit of podcast work himself, so he's a natural for the show. We have a great time talking about where he currently resides in LA, and I share with Bob a pretty cool experience I had in Las Vegas at a museum. And of course, I will also ask Bob my kicking back with the creator questions. And again, just a quick reminder to rate and review the show in iTunes. It goes a long way to helping the show. And while you're in there, do the same for the other podcasts that you enjoy and listen to. And tell people about the show. Spread the word. Because really, that's the best way to expand the audience. And don't forget, you can reach me directly creatortalks at gmail.com, creatortalks at gmail.com, and follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at creatortalkspod. That's at creatortalkspod. There, I will post my Saturday and Sunday Bronze Age comics from my collection. Occasionally, I'll pop a Silver Age in there, and occasionally, I'll put a Copper Age in there. Some evoke happy childhood memories, and others have some connection with a guest I have on the show. Do you have a favorite comic from the Silver Age, Bronze Age, or Copper Age? Please post on social media, tag me, and tell me why at Creator Talks Pod. I'm interested in hearing your story because we all have connections with our comics. We can look at a comic and say, you know, I remember where I was when I read that, what it meant to me. Share yours at Creator Talks Pod. Again, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen and supporting the show. I work very hard to bring you an interview every two weeks with a comic book creator, both legendary and those up and coming that I think are of particular interest. Who knows? Those up and coming may be tomorrow's legends. For Creator Talks, this has been Christopher Calloway. Until next time. want it, you got it. You want it, baby, just bust a move. I wanted to chill, but making all of my travel arrangements was freaking me out. So I went to Priceline.com, where you can name your own price for some dope airfare, a hip hotel, a fly rental car. You want some of this? Then you know what to do, dog. Bust a move. <laughs>